If you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts with me, Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Uh, we're on already on our seventh Sunday in our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, it's been such a good time. Going through it one, one verse, one section at a time, taking our time, and I'm, I'm really excited over the uh, passages that we'll get to cover today. So open your Bibles to Acts 5. And again, I'm going to start in verse 12. We're going to cover a lot more ground as far as verses than we did last week, probably about three times as many. Uh, I don't expect it to be three times as long. So uh, because I know that the, the mind cannot receive more than the hind end can endure. Uh, so I'm going to try to be thoughtful to that. But it's just a great passage here that we're going to cover. We'll start reading just a few of the verses and I want to pray over the word as we receive it. In Acts 5 and verse 12, it says, Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. And as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, cleanse our hearts and, and unify our, our attention so that we can see what you would teach us today. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. Lead us into all truth. And I thank you that you open our eyes to the wonders of what we get to hold in our hand. It's more than just a book, but it is alive and active and working. And I thank you that we'll see that work in our life in Jesus name. Amen. So what I want us to remember as we go through this today, when we're reading scripture, it was written about real people. These are stories that include real people, real lives, and it's written for real people. What we're going to see is the story of the kingdom of God redeeming and restoring uh, men and women, which is awesome. And that's what we enjoy today. It's a message. It's going forth, but it's so much more than just a message. The gospel demands a response. The gospel, the teaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that name that we sing about, the name that's above every name, it demands a response. Whether you want to respond or not, it demands a response. And we're going to see some of those responses today. We're going to see how people handle when the gospel is preached. When Jesus is lifted up, we can handle that in different ways. And we're going to see some of those today. Um, Acts, as, as we know, and I'll just give a little recap uh, for those that haven't been here with us. It follows the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, a story about who he is, where he came from, what he did. And Acts follows the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus after his life and ministry. And he promises that they will receive the Holy Spirit. They'll be clothed with power from on high so that they can be his witnesses, witnesses of the name of what he has done in the world in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And so we've seen the power come upon them. We've seen preaching. We've seen signs and wonders following. We've seen growth in the community. We've seen pressure from outside. We're going to see a little bit more of that today. Last week, we saw that there was hypocrisy inside. And we talked about how the church has never yet been perfect because it's made up of people. And we saw that. And again, we're going to cover a little bit more uh, this week. But in 12 through 16, we've we've seen these summaries before as Luke, who has written uh, the book of Acts, he'll, he'll throw in specific situations and then he'll also throw in summaries. And we see another summary in verses 12 through 16. And again, the, the church always sounds great in summary. Our life as a Christian is going to sound awesome in summary. And when you get down into the details, there's a little bit more grit. There's a little bit more difficulty, a little bit more real life comes in. But as we're going through this summary, I want you to look at the people and look at the responses to the gospel, the presenting and the preaching of Jesus and his kingdom. First, you have the apostles. It says signs and wonders are being done through the hands of the apostles among the people and they're gathering together in Solomon's colonnade. It's there at the temple. They're gathering every day at the temple. So you've got them. They are locked in. They're walking in boldness. They're proclaiming the name of Jesus in their community. There's signs and wonders following them, which are also testifying to what they are saying is true. And so we we know them. We've seen them, but we've got a few other Uh, groups of people that it lists in here. The apostles are first, but the second one we see in verse 13, and I'm going to call them the hesitant. Verse 13, it says they were, it says they were gathering at the temple, but it said no one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. No one else dared to join. When they're gathering, it says there was a hesitancy amongst people to join up with them, even though if you ask them, what do you think about what's going on? They go, oh, those folks are great. They're just great. Well, have you gone over there with them? Oh, no, I hadn't gone over there with them. There was a hesitancy there. And so I wanted to look at that hesitancy. Why would we be hesitant to join in with the community that the gospel is established I think part of it is there's a hesitancy to believe that the gospel is actually for me. That it can actually be true for me in my life. That I can believe, yeah, God, God loves us, yeah, but I mean, as far as forgiveness of sins, I don't know if he really knows who he's talking to. I don't know if he really knows where I've come from. I don't know if he really knows what I've done. I don't really know that that is for me. You know, maybe it's just, well, well, that, that's just for those, you know, all those folks were lame and sick and tormented by the you know, devil or they're, or they're just those ignorant fishermen like that. That's for them. I don't really know if that's for me. And we can see that attitude come up when the gospel is preached. Right. We may have even seen that in our own heart when we were out and we were wayward. Well, maybe that's just for somebody else. And again, maybe it can be I'm uh, the thought that I'm beyond help. That, yeah, that, that's for them. Yeah, maybe God loves them. Maybe God loves Stephen, but m- m- maybe God loves them. But he, no, because I know me and I don't know how he would love me knowing me and who I am. Maybe we're hesitant because we expect to receive the judgment that we deserve instead of the grace that's promised. Right. Because, again, we know ourselves. We know who we 
are. We know we're worthy of judgment, and yet He is offering grace. But we, we think that sounds, there must be a catch. There must be a catch to it, and so there's a hesitancy to believe. And the base of that expecting judgment is because God can be intimidating. He's really big. Really big. And completely holy. And that intimidates us. Because we're not big or holy. We're not either one. And so when we become aware of Him, which Scripture tells us that we have an awareness of God that just results from being in this world before you ever hear His name taught or preached, that you have an awareness of the fact that He is there. And that weighs on us, especially when you begin to realize not only is He there, but He's holy and He has standards that we could never meet. And you mix that with the desire that we have to be with Him and it puts us in an interesting situation. He's really big. He's really awesome. I feel my heart drawn to him, but I see he's holy and I know I don't meet that standard. What do I do? It's the weight that we feel. It's the weight of God. Because again, God is big. God is big. So we've got the hesitant. We've got the apostles. Another one we see is, I, I, I would label them the superstitious. Verse 15 says, as a result of, of all that they're seeing, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow would fall on them. And then it goes on to tell us that they would bring the sick and the tormented and the lame from the villages out, uh, outside of Jerusalem. They would bring them in and they would be healed. But, but this practice of laying somebody down so the shadow of somebody else could pass over them, that, that was a superstition of the time. It wasn't something they were taught to do. It doesn't even say that those people were healed. And so sometimes when we hear the gospel, we, we, we turn it into a little bit of a superstition, which is only a belief that results from ignorance. I don't know any better. I haven't yet been taught better. This is what I know. And so this is what I'm going to try. And we become, you know, shadow chasers thinking about magic or chance. It's an irrational attitude towards God. And again, it just comes from a genuine place of I don't know any better yet. And we see that in the superstitious. They, they were focused on the signs, but they were missing up to that point the message. They were missing the message and they wouldn't know it until later. So we see the apostles, we see the hesitant, we see the superstitious. We see those who are being delivered. We'll call them the healed. We see those that are being healed, delivered, set free, the lame, the sick, the, the tormented But they would either then move into the gathering or go back home. And while it says many were being added, it also tells me that they were hesitant to join up with the community and what was going on. So we can come to God seeking the immediate needs that we have and not giving in, not giving over to him the ultimate need that we know we all have, which is to be with him. I'm sick. I need to be made well. I'm lame. I wish I could walk. I'm poor. I wish I wasn't poor anymore. And we see things like that will draw us close to him. But if we don't come for him, we won't stay with him. Amen. Hallelujah. You were healed. You were delivered. You were set free. You were lame and you couldn't walk. And now you can. But if you use those legs to then walk away back to your own life, which some did. 
then it profits you little to nothing. Little in life, nothing at the end of life. And so we, we see that, that it, it, do I seek health and wholeness from Jesus? Am I coming to Jesus to get something or am I coming to Jesus because Jesus is what I get? Like he said in Matthew 6, do I seek first the kingdom? God knowing I need all these things. He said, don't come just because you're hungry. Don't come just so you can get clothes to put on. He, he said, come and seek the kingdom because your heavenly father knows you need all these things. And then in seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. But we're just seeking lesser things. And we all have done that. We all continue to do that at points in our life. And these are ways that the scripture helps us identify when, when, when that's happening, what the answer is. Right. It is to look up to him. So the gospel demands a response. It has to have a response. You cannot even ignore it. You may think you're ignoring it, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And so you see these groups that are developing. You've got the gathered, redeemed, those that are like, I can't do anything but be with him. Like this is it, my eyes have been opened. And now I see you see the hesitant who are like something's going on, but I just don't know if that's for me. I don't know if I can enter in. There's a lot going on. I'm just not sure. And so I'm on the outside. And you see the superstitious who are still ignorant of what God is actually doing. But they know that something's going on and they're trying to get close and you see the, the needy, the seeking, those that have felt and, and actual needs that they're like, I need an answer for this. Those are the groups we've seen so far. And then another one shows up. It's starting in verse 17. Look at verse 17 and 18. We didn't read this a while ago. We're going to read it now. It says, then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. The next group we see is the jealous. The jealous. And first of all, who is this? When some of the high priest, the high priest of Israel, oh, over the temple of the tribe of Aaron, going all the way back to the Old Testament, following along with the order that was set up. And he says, all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, even in their ruling religious governance there, they had factions developed like we have political parties. They had similar situation in the religious community. It's like, well, you're a Sadducee. I'm a Pharisee. We disagree on some of these things. And he was a Sadducee. Now, they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And the old joke is that's why they were sad. You see, they didn't believe in the resurrection. I told you it was an old joke. He says that he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. <coughs> they were filled with jealousy. So that, that's who they were. These are the leaders of God's temple, the religious community in Israel. They should have seen this and recognized it, but they didn't. They saw what was going on, the church, as a threat and something to be jealous of instead of the answer that God had sent from heaven in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what they should have been seeing. That's not what they were seeing. How were they missing it? What, how, how do you miss that? Nobody knew more about the Old Testament than these guys. 
Nobody had read it more than they had. Nobody had talked about it more than they had and they were missing it. And the reason that I believe they were missing it is because they were looking at themselves instead of him. They were focused on themselves instead of him. The word here that uses when he writes about it is that they were jealous. Now, what I thought was interesting is that word is interchangeable with zealous in the Greek. It would be used later in, in other situations to talk about zeal, zeal for something, which is that I'm willing to contend for it, that I, I will be a rival with you in this if you disagree with me on it, that I'm going to hold to, I'm going to be de defensive on behalf of something. This jealousy, but also this zealousness for something that this is something I'm willing to fight for. And how many of you know it's good to be zealous for the right thing? Stubbornness can be good if you're stubborn about the right thing. Zeal is good when you're zealous for the right thing. But one thing Paul would write about them later in the book of Romans, he, he would say they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He said it's based in ignorance, which means what they're fighting against something that they shouldn't be fighting against. They misunderstood their purpose in God's kingdom. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. They loved the law in God's kingdom. They took it like this has become a competition and I am the top performer. And so I am to be set above everyone else. When the law was sent to us to show how unworthy all of us were to enter into God's presence. They misunderstood the purpose of the law and it was more of a competition for them. They worked their way to the top and then they declared this is what true life with Yahweh, with God is about. To work your way up like I have. This is what y'all need to do is exactly what I have done. It's about our performance and it's about what we could do. Which the... What, what kind of message was that for the weak, the tempted, the tried? It was a message of no hope. There's no hope in that. There is no hope in that. And you see, and I've seen, and I won't go too far into this, communities of faith, and some of them pretend to be Christian, and they are not. But you look at them from the outside and like, they got some real crushers in there. Everybody seems to be just doing awesome. What is this? What is happening here? And what I figured out as I looked it is their regiment, their program it is so strict that only the best can even survive in it. Everybody else is going to wash out real quick. Everybody else is going to be washed out real quick. The, 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 the crushers, the workers, the grinders, those are the only ones who can make it as far as they've made it. Everybody else is just a pile of bodies behind the bus. And that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger. They wouldn't have understood this. They wouldn't have understood that. And so they were jealous. Why were they jealous? Because they sat at the top of the scoreboard. They were the ones crushing it. They were doing great. Or at least appeared to be from the outside, just like the other. I said they appeared to be from the outside. Inside, not so good. But they appear to be crushing it from the outside. They're at the top of the scoreboard. And then these guys, this random group of people, 
that had been following Jesus show up and say, yeah, the scoreboard, that's not what matters. The score, they're at the top of the scoreboard. The last thing you want to hear is that the scoreboard doesn't matter. And pointing out to them that you are not as good as you think that you are. The points don't add up the way that you think that they do. Even if they did, you're broken just like everybody else. You may tie the tenth even of your spice garden, but you are broken like everybody else. And surprisingly, they didn't like that message. Not only that, but when the apostles were preaching, they kept focusing on the fact and like, oh, by the way, y'all are the ones that killed Jesus. He came, the source of life, and you sought to have him killed. And again, they didn't like resurrection. They're talking about Jesus being resurrected. And then all of us at the last day, that, that was like to boot. That was too much. That was too much for them. So, so they were jealous or, or zealous to defend uh, their way because their way was under attack by this Jesus group. So what did they try to do? What did it say they tried to do in verse 18? They arrested the apostles and put them in jail. It's seek, seeking to control. We're going to control you. It's what we're going to do. And I know that Peter and John are probably thinking, jail again? Right? We read that after the lame man was healed in the temple and Peter starts preaching. Remember, they arrested him then, too. Except this time, everybody got rounded up, it sounds like. They took them all in to the public jail. I'm guessing at least the 12, because it says all of them. And this is something that you see happen. Those that are in bondage to legalism, legalism being that scoreboard mentality that I made right with God by what I do, that that's what makes me who I am. That's where I get my validation from. That's where I get my righteousness from are the actions that I actually do what I do. Legalism, that that's how I'm made right with God. This is what it does to others. It tries to confine those that Jesus has set free under a new method of control. Look, they, they, they said, you, you're not doing what we think you should do or what we want you to do, so we're going to bind you up. And they throw them in jail again. And again, m morality, doing the right thing, is a good thing. It's a good thing to do the right thing and learn more about God's way of life because it is life and health to all that we can do. Morality, good. Spirituality, good. Moralism, that I'm made right by what I do, that'll kill you. That'll crush you. You know why? Because you can't do it. When you go to scoreboard, it'll crush you. It'll crush you. And so they are in this situation, and we could talk, well, we may talk more about that when we get there on Wednesday night. Um, Wednesday nights, we have Bible study here in the cafe at 630, where we go a little bit more in depth into the text, a little bit at a time. So we're behind where we are this morning and uh, just loving life, moving slowly through there. So they've got them in jail. Look what happens when they're in jail. Verse 19 and 20. Because they were arrested, put in public jail. Verse 19. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. So they are imprisoned and the angel of the Lord comes. Supernatural 
intervention. Again, more on that on Wednesday night when we get there. They're set free from their bondage and given a direction. And what was the direction? Go tell everybody about this life. Tell everybody about this life. That word means full life. This life that they're experiencing that isn't just for them, but it's for others. Also, he says, go tell everybody, go tell people about this life, this life in the kingdom. Again, we obey, but our obedience when we're living in the kingdom doesn't come back as credit to me. But it goes up to him, the one who set me free from my bondage, set me free from the bondage of the feeling that I need to perform, that I need to get my validation from people, that I have to have a person sign off on who I am and what my identity is and, and, and what I actually am, am coming from and going to. No, no, no. He does that. He does that. And he set me free from the need to get that validation from other people. He sets me free from where I come from. He sets me free from what I've done to new life in him. We talked about that when we went through baptism. We were buried with Christ and then raised with him just like he was raised to walk in newness of life. So the same is for us. That's in Romans. And so he, angel of the Lord, supernatural intervention, breaks them out of jail and gives them a direction to go and stand in the temple and tell all the people about this life. Now, it's not overanalyzing, I don't believe, to say when God sets you free, he wants you to tell people about it. Amen. He wants you to share that with others. And when you do that, you got to know you're going to run into some of these groups. You're going to run into the hesitant. You're going to run into the superstitious. You're going to run into those that are so... Um, saturated with need that that's all that they can see. You're going to run into the jealous and the resistant. You're going to run into them when you're sharing that he has set you free. But that's what he wants us to do, lest they stay where they are, lest they stay where we were. So that direction comes out and they answer it. First part of verse 21, hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Hearing this, they went and did it. Hearing this, they went and did it. And then really neat. I love the way that he writes this because it's, it's, it's uh, comical almost. He's lampooning this other group a little bit. Because where are the apostles supposed to be? In jail. They were set free. Now they're teaching in the temple. Starting early that morning. At daybreak. Sun up, they're in there. And then the latter part of verse 21. We'll read a few verses there. It says, when the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin. That's like the, and it says the full council of the Israelites. Think like the temple's Supreme Court. That's what you got. And they sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there to the jail, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And as the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Wondering what would come of this. So the court has been assembled. They're going to pass judgment on the apostles and like, bring them in. And they go in there, they go to open the doors to bring them out of the jail. And they're like, 
Because you know, right? You know how it's going to go. They're not going to be happy. And so they come back like, so funny thing, they're not there. And they're like, what? And it says they were baffled by what had happened and wondered what would come of this. Listen, your freedom in Christ will baffle those who are still walking in darkness. They're not going to understand. They're going to go, I don't. Why? Because they think they have you figured. They think you are the person who is in this cell. That's who you are. That's all you can be. That's where I expect to find you. And then when they see you set free, it doesn't make sense. The freedom that we find in Christ baffles those that are still walking in darkness. And so then... Verse 25, someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in the jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. So they bring them in. And again, you see the attitude of the jealous all the way through this. The same attitude of like, well, because they brought them in without force. Why? Because they were worried about what people would think. So they were doing something, looked like it was nice, but their motivation wasn't nice. You see that? And so they bring them in, again, not out of compassion, not doing, you know, taking it easy on them, but because of their own selfish interests. And in verse 27 and 28, they tell them what they want them to do. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And we talked about those intimidating rooms. You would think this would intimidate these brothers. It did not. And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And when did he tell them not to teach in the name? After the lame man had been healed and they called in just Peter and John together like, you got to stop this. And he was like, just letting you know, we can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop, not going to stop. Just telling you. It, they didn't want him to teach in Jesus name. You still see this today. You can teach people to, uh, hey, do the right thing. You can teach them principles in life and everybody's on board. You, you can teach them how to think right and to be kind. Everybody's on board. Sure, that sounds great. You bring in Jesus. No, 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 no. All of a sudden the temperature changes, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting how that happens? How a life lived on the earth 2,000 years ago will bring people's temperature up today. Isn't that funny how that happens? Again, you can teach all that other stuff. You bring in Jesus. You gotta get, we got to get that out of here. We got to get it out of here. Why is the reaction so visceral? And again, it's all over the world. All over the world you see it. In government, in society, it's, it's a global thing, this pushback against the name of Jesus. Why is the reaction so visceral? Why does he get people so fired up? It started then, it continues now. You still see it today. Because remember, why do people get so fired up? The gospel, the preaching of Jesus, the declaration of who he is requires a response. It requires a response. You can't ignore it. You, 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 you must either repent or resist. One or the other. And so what are they picking? Resist. They're picking resist. I love the way that Lewis said it. He's like, Jesus doesn't give you the option to just say he was a good man. 
He doesn't give you the option to just say he was a good teacher because he went around and said he was the son of God. So you either have to label him as a lunatic, a crazy person who's just going around saying he's the son of God, just like it would be the equivalent of somebody saying they're a microwave or whatever else. Just like he just says stuff. Don't listen to him. You either have to label him a lunatic or you have to label him a liar that he was conscious of what he was doing, but he wasn't telling the truth. Or, or what Lewis believed, what I believe, what you believe, is that he is actually legitimately and completely Lord of all things. Amen. As it says in the book of Colossians, that he was the one through whom all things were created and by him all things are held together. Yeah. You've got to pick one of those. He doesn't give you the option to go, yeah, he taught good stuff. Yeah, he taught us the golden rule and we should be nice to one another and everybody should be nice to one another. Except he said he was the son of God. And that brings it into a whole other context. So he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he is the Lord of all things. He can't just be a good dude that said good things. And you see, look what they said. We told you to stop preaching Jesus. Remember it said there was jealousy, there was zealousness for their way of life. They saw this as coming against them. And look what they said. They said, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, now we've really hit on it, hadn't we? You're determined to prove that we are guilty in regards to this man's blood. When, when you've got the jealous, when you've got the resistant, when you've got the persecutors of the church, those that push back so hard that they get violent against the church. We're going to see that as the book of Acts continues, that it's getting ramped up. The resistance is ramping up. They said, you're determined to make us guilty of the blood of Jesus. And Peter said, yep. Yes. Yes. We're, we're going to keep saying it because it's true. And, and I'm going to come back to their guilt here in just a second because it's going to get worse. But I want to cover what he said real quick. In verse 30 and 32, I'm sorry, 20, 29. And then 30, because they said, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered, hanging him on a tree. And God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those forefathers. The one you say you believe in, the one you say that you're serving, he is the one who raised up Jesus whom you had murdered. He's like, you killed, you did. Your blood is on him. You are guilty of that. His blood is on you. I said that wrong. And it says that God has exalted him to a high place, a high place of honor at his right hand. That's also speaking to authority, dominion, the kingdom, the dominion the king rules and reigns over. He's saying that Jesus has been set into place by God the Father, the one you serve, the one we serve, the one whose name we stood under as the children of Israel, the God of our forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has raised Jesus, whom you killed, to the right hand of power and authority. And it's that name which we preach and again, in regards to their guilt, he says, we preach repentance to Israel, that they would change the way that they think and have their sins forgiven. 
have their sins forgiven. And look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It's getting worse. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. The gospel demands a response. And wow, are they getting one, right? And again, why, why is this? Why are they pushing back so hard? What did they mean when they said you're going to you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood? Why was that such a big deal for them? Listen, we are never so mad as when we get caught. We're never so mad as when we get caught. When we get caught or called on our sin, we have two choices. It's either repent or be mad, right? And they chose mad. You ever caught your kid doing something? Yeah. And, and two responses. I mean, they can't lie about it. And that goes over into mad because that's crazy. You should be lying to me. Yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You're right. That was completely wrong. For, forgive me. That's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. It's humility. It's, it's acknowledging I've done something wrong. Will you forgive me? The other one is like, well, what were you doing looking there anyway? Well, you think, what do you think? You're perfect. You can just tell me. Oh, yeah. So you're just perfect all of a sudden. Right. That's our reaction. That's everybody's reaction going all the way back to here. When, when, when our sin is pointed out, even when God points it out, we're like, well, God, well, do you know what they're doing? Have you seen what they're doing over here? We deflect and put it off. It's like, no, 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 no. Repent or resist, and the resistance takes the role of anger. And they want to just kill him. The best thing we could do is just kill him. Then we wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. Well, it didn't work out real well when they killed Jesus. <laughs> it just made it worse. But they were enraged to the point of being murderous. They were pretending like nothing was wrong with them. And the message of Jesus was pointing out, there's something wrong with all of us, brothers. Repent and have your sins blotted out. When we get that called, we have that first response of, there's not supposed to be anything wrong with me. I've worked this hard so that there's nothing wrong with me. And yet, we are all the same in that. And so what you see coming out in them was the same. It's hypocrisy. It's putting on the face of this is who I am when the real me hides behind of it. And now that's been called out and it made them uncomfortable and it made them angry. We're almost done. I want to close with what happens next. And we'll go down through verse 42. I told you we we're going to cover some ground today. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. And then he said to them, to the Sanhedrin, those that he was with there on the council that remained in the room, he said, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. He said, after that, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. Amen. You may even be found fighting 
against God. They were persuaded by him after they called in the apostles and had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Verse 42, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So you have a voice of reason pop up in Gamaliel. He's going to be a good one for us to talk about. His name's going to pop up again in the book of Acts. But it says he was well respected by all the people and he would have had to have been when you got a group full of people that are ready to commit murder and you're going to stand up and tell them, hey, 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 let's hold on. So he stands up and he says, first of all, get them out of here. So they, they removed them from the room, I guess, to try to bring the temperature down a little bit. And he was like, y'all be real careful about what you're talking about doing, what you're thinking about doing right now. He said, just remember all the things we've seen before. We've seen men show up and, and say things and people get wrapped up in it and, and, and fervor shows up and it seems like it's going to be a big deal. But then when that leader dies, the movement goes away. He said it happened with Judas. It happened with Judas the Galilean. When he perished, all the guys who were following him that we thought were going to cause a problem, what did they do? They just quit doing what they were doing. They all went back home. They all went back home. So here's what I'm trying to tell y'all. Listen, if, if, if this is not of God, it's going to come to nothing on its own. And you don't have to do anything. But then he said something else. He said, if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. You won't be able to overthrow it. Why? Because again, God, pretty big. When he decides he's going to do something, it gets done. And so he's telling them, he said, maybe you would even be found to be fighting against God himself. And then they were calmed by this. After he said, hey, leave these men alone, let them alone. Because here's what I'm telling you. And after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, which if you're thinking, if you're the apostles, you're like, Lord, I mean, you got us. An angel of the Lord showed up and got us out of jail. We really got to be flogged. <laughs> Can he come back? Like, is he doing something? And so that shows me that while, while he's going to set us free, we may still have to take some lumps in this life. What did Paul say? Anyone who wants to live a life for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That what he said. You may have to take some lumps in this life. Make sure you're taking lumps for something that is the right thing. Amen. Don't just be taking lumps because you got a bad attitude. Don't just be taking lumps because you want things to be a certain way. Take your lumps because of the right thing. Amen. If I'm going to take my lumps, I'm fine with taking them, but I want to know that I'm taking it for the right reason, for the cause of Christ in this world. And so they were flogged, which means they were, they were like hit with rods, sticks. And they said, now listen, well, I'm going to tell you again, stop talking about Jesus. And then they left out. And what does it say they did? It says every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So we've seen all these groups. We've got the faithful followers. We've got the hesitant, the superstitious. All of those are getting close. You've got the healed, the set free. You've got the jealous the angry, those that want it to be their way and not his way. And it's two, one of them's repentant, one of them's resistant. 
A lot of the repentant ones, are, a lot of those groups fall into the repentant. And the jealous fall into the resistance. And you see those that were bound being set free. And even those that were persecuted, not giving up the faith. And we look at Gamaliel's advice and look now at how right he was in what he said. He said, if it's of God, you will not stop it. And look at all those that came after them. This was just the first um, effort to stop the church of Jesus Christ from advancing, to stop the kingdom from coming and his will being done on this earth as it is in heaven. This was just the first of many. And they all continue to fail. They all continue to fail. Why? Because every day, every day they continued meeting in Jesus name, sharing that with those that hadn't yet heard it, encouraging the superstitious, educating them in their ignorance. They said, let us teach you some more about him so that you understand him, welcoming the, the, the lame, the weak into health and wholeness in Christ Jesus. And see, seeing those that were in jail, in bondage, torment from darkness, set free. And it's continued every day since that day worldwide. That is the legitimacy of the gospel. You want to talk about why it needs a response? Because it's that powerful. It is that powerful. It literally cannot be stopped. And they have tried. We could, we could spend weeks going through all the efforts to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And every time that it happened, the civilization, the leader, what, they might make some progress. They would persecute the brethren, but in the end, the church continued. What else I mean, survives under that level of persecution if it's not ordained by God to continue? Nothing. That is the legitimacy of the gospel and the power of it. You see it in the church and it's the same thing in your heart and in mine. That nothing can overthrow it. As long as you continue following him, as long as you stay close to him, the only thing that only thing that can overthrow it is if you fall backwards into one of these groups. If you go backwards into jealousy, you go backwards into unrepentance, you, you go backwards into self-worship and self-righteousness. But if you're walking with him, it's unable to be overthrown. Though the jealous rage and resist, he is not going away. And many, many hearts have been turned to him along the way and are still coming home and finding that the gospel is true and the right response is repentance. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. I want to pray over this as we get ready to go today. Father, thank you. Thank you for the testimony that, that, that the words of Gamaliel, he, he, he couldn't have spoke it more true. That if this church of Jesus Christ is of you, that no one would be able to stop it. If it wasn't of you, we would have never even heard about it. We hadn't heard about the rebellion of Judas. We hadn't heard about the rebellion of Thutis. We didn't hear about those because they came to nothing. But what we heard about was Jesus Christ. The name that you lifted up above every name. And I thank you that we find freedom in that name, not bondage. That we find hope and not the crushing weight of expectation. 
I thank you that we don't have to show up righteous, that we can show up weak and lame and tormented, and yet you welcome us in that name. Lord, as we gather, that we would be just like those that gathered in the earth, that we would continue together in your name, teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, our only hope of getting home, everlasting life with you, eternal peace. I thank you, Lord, that we have that hope, and I thank you that it is not fragile because it has persevered through these many generations, and it will until he comes again. I thank you that we would be the repentant, not the resistant. Lord, not even just initially, but in life, we know that you're continuing to sanctify us and grow us into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you point out those things to us, when you bring the truth to us, that we would be repentant, not resistant that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We wouldn't be like the Sanhedrin because they are gone away and yet your church remains. I thank you that you, you fill us with the same boldness that when we face the trials, we face the tribulations, we face the resistance, that we're able to stand and say, I can do nothing but continue to speak his name because I have found nothing else to compare it to. He has no rival and he has no equal. And God, I thank you for your church. And I thank you that you will make sure that it is never overthrown. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, bless our gathering today. As we go, I thank you that we go in peace and unity with each other. Protect us, keep us safe. That our endeavors this week would be blessed by you. And Lord, we'd have our eyes open for opportunities to share. To share the gospel that has changed our lives with others. In a word, in an action, in a moment, in a conversation. I thank you that the hope that we have is contagious. And, it, and we don't have to keep it drummed up. The power comes from you. And we thank you for your goodness in that. We thank you in Jesus' name.